Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Engineering Student Experience Podcast. My name is Paul Nissenson, and I'm a faculty member in the Mechanical Engineering Department at Cal Poly Pomona. Today's episode is all about what it's like to be on the other side of the engineering student experience, that is, what it's like to be a faculty member. Many students may think instructors only lecture and grade papers, but they have many more responsibilities than that. Recently, I sat down with two engineering faculty members who have been teaching at Cal Poly Pomona for a very long time. Mariapan Jawaharlal, who goes by the name Jawa, is a professor in the mechanical engineering department. And Gerald Herder is a professor in the Electromechanical Engineering Technology Department. We discussed their path to becoming professors, some of the joys and challenges of the profession, general advice for students, and many other topics. It is my hope that you will leave this episode with a better idea of what it's like to be a faculty member at a university and realize that faculty members are just people too. Enjoy! All right. Well, I'm sitting here with uh, Professor Jerry Herder from the Electromechanical Engineering Technology Department and uh, Maria Pan Jawaharlal. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. We, we affectionately call him Jawa, uh, a professor of mechanical engineering here at Cal Poly Pomona. And today uh, we're going to be talking all about what it's like to be a faculty member. First of all, thank you very much for taking time out of your day. It's a Friday afternoon. You could be doing so many other things, but uh, thanks for coming here and, and having this discussion. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Glad to be here. So you both are, are seasoned faculty. Uh, you've been teaching for a while. Um, could you give us a little bit of background, maybe Jerry first, give us a little bit of background of um, you know, where did you get educated, um, maybe any kind of an industry experience, how long have you been teaching for, things like that. All right. Sure, Paul. I uh, grew up in California. I wasn't born here, but I grew up in the Central Valley of California, Bakersfield area, and my, I spent all my developing years there. I ended up coming to Cal Poly Pomona as a student in 1977. So um, It's currently 2018 when we're recording this. <laughs> so I uh, completed my bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. And I uh, worked locally for uh, the local utility, Southern California Edison, for three years. Um, then, as I often say, wanderlust struck, and I uh, ended up going to Africa, working for the United Nations Volunteers and the Peace Corps for two plus years. I was married. I got married at the time, and. Uh, so it's been a wonderful time there, although it was also the time of the big uh, drought in Africa, the 1984 drought. And um, then I returned after that uh, session. I um, was looking around and contacted some old people uh, to, uh, to find some positions, and Cal Poly Pomona came up. And um, so I started doing lectures and labs, and it eventually morphed into full-time lecturing, and then the whole ten-year process. And uh, so I've been here since every thirty years. By the way, I did get my master's in between there at mm. at Cal Poly Pomona, also in master's in engineering at that time. So, wow, what kind of projects did you uh, work on in yeah. Africa? So, uh, yeah, so yeah, uh, so when I worked in Ethiopia, very interesting country. Uh, it, it was a, I worked at what's called a teacher training school, okay? 
most people, America, we don't use those very often, but uh, UCLA was actually a teacher training school when it started. They called them normal schools, if you will. Berkeley didn't allow UCLA to be anything different. But, uh, <laughs> but it's very traditional in other countries that there's teacher training schools because they don't have enough teachers. And so this was kind of a community college program where they trained high school teachers to do technology, technical coursework, uh, obviously electricity in my standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with a lot of different expatriates from Germany, West Germany, East Germany, Brits, uh, all kinds of people. It was a wonderful environment over there except for the drought. And um, so we did some various projects, water projects and the like, but it was mostly a community college level kind of teaching. Okay. And Jawa, maybe a little bit of background about yourself. All right. Um, I have been in the academy circle for the past 20 years. I was also in the industry. Then I was also an entrepreneur for about four or five years in between. Um, my background is kind of mixed. I did my elementary school in Sri Lanka, middle school, high school in India, and I did my college engineering in Russia. Then I did my PhD in America. So I kind of studied in three different continents. Um, and then I worked in the industry for a few years and moved around a little bit in the US to three different universities. And I came to Cal Poly Pomona in 2003. So I'm here for 15 years now. Wow. So when did you both know that you wanted to be a teacher at the university level? Well, I, I, I never was thinking university level teaching. Um, teaching's a little bit in my DNA. My dad was a teacher and I have several siblings that are, are teachers. Uh, they were history and my older brother is. Uh, but nobody was that technical in, in my family except one of my brothers, a mechanic. And so I learned a lot from him. And since he was mechanical, I had to go electrical. Yeah. And so uh, for me, it just kind of fell into place based upon life experience. Uh, I, I always enjoyed explaining and talking to people about technical things. And just because of the UN experience and doing that teaching, I came back and fell into it in that path and it just developed. Mm. Yeah, for me it just happened that way. Um, if I go back and think about it, even when I was in high school or middle school, I would be helping out my friends with whatever the questions they were struggling with or problems they were trying to solve. But it became very distinct in college. I would go to class with my friends and then later after the class, my friends would ask me questions on the material that was covered earlier in the day. So I would always try to figure out a way to explain them uh, differently or in a way that makes sense to them. Uh, some of my friends would call me, hey, professor. Um, <laughs> I didn't think of becoming a professor at that time, but it was there like a bunch of people would call me, hey, professor, can you help me with this question? Even though I was still a student and, and a friend. Uh, so that was there. And then when I started working in the industry as an engineer, uh, one of the responsibilities I had was to train the new engineers that were being hired. And I would do the training for them. And I truly enjoyed the training myself. Um, how can I teach those uh, techniques and what I knew in a fun way, easy way to those engineers. 
So along the way, I felt maybe I should be better off if I become a college professor. Then I found out if you want to be a college professor, you need a PhD. So yep. some people go to PhD to do research, but I went to PhD with the goal of getting the PhD so I can become a professor. So it just happened that way. Mm. So you were called professor by, by your uh, fellow classmates at a young age. So nowadays, what do you prefer to be called? You, you prefer the title professor or what, what feels comfortable to you? I, I know from my own perspective, I'm, I've been teaching for about six and a half years, it still feels a little odd to have that kind of title put before my name. It, I'm getting more used to it over time, but I'm wondering, do you prefer professor or? I, I think for the students, the majority of students, they, they prefer mm. the title of professor. I, I wouldn't really care. It's a little be a little unique if they use the common name, but uh, so I think for everybody's kind of, in, you know, feeling professor's fine, I, I go by that, then probably prefer that. Um, I tell, my students call me either Professor Java or Dr. Java. Uh, it really doesn't matter to me. And I don't tell them you should call me either Professor Java or Dr. Uh, Professor Java or Dr. Java. But I personally prefer to be called Dr. Java because my, my mom wanted me to be a doctor, <laughs> which I could never become, <laughs> the kind of doctor that helps people. So it's like a secret pleasure to be called Dr. Java, even though I'm not a medical doctor. Yeah, no, no, that's, mean, exactly, I mean. <laughs> that's exactly what my wife says. He's, he's, he's not the kind of doctor that helps people. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so how, how do you view, you, overall, the big picture, how do you view your role in your students' you know, academic career? I probably changed my own thought process on this over a period of time. But in the last 10, 15 years, I honestly believe my role is really like a coach, like a mentor. That's what in my mind when I go into the classroom. Uh, so I look teaching from a slightly different perspective, not just delivering certain amount of content, which is important, but I really want to make sure that they understand why they are there, uh, how this will benefit them in the long run, how can they generate some kind of an intrinsic motivation so they can pursue the subject that I teach, not just in the classroom, perhaps outside. So in that sense, I really think my role is more like a coach. Yeah, I would agree with uh, Dr. Jawa on that. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying in the academia about we're transitioning from the sage on the stage <laughs> to the guide on the side. I, and I think that's, that's pretty appropriate in the traditional way of, uh, I've seen Jawa's presentation where he goes back to medieval universities and there's somebody up on a pulpit talking about uh, the subject at hand and all the students are bored on the, in the <laughs> audience. And, uh, and so I certainly consider it's a, it's a journey we're taking with the students to get them to where they want to go. And it's going to be different for every student. Some are going to go, you know, into engineering right after school. Some are are possibly for grad school and the like, but it's an individual kind of journey that you're trying to lead the students through. Hmm. So take us through a typical week, or maybe a, a, a term might be a better um, unit of time here, you know, a typical quarter or semester. What, what's, what's a typical quarter or semester like 
for you as an instructor? It's kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> In what way? Well, I mean, um, because if you think about it, you know, I mean, we repeat this every, it's like a season, right? Um, for me, every day, I take it one day at a time. That's how I make my life interesting. Uh, otherwise, it gets a little bit boring because if you look at a quarter, there's 10 weeks, we have classes. And so if I do a three-unit class, four of those classes, I teach 12 hours a week. And then I got to prepare for the classes. Then I, I meet with students. So half the time, about 20 plus hours goes in into working with students or giving lecture and so on. So remaining 15, 20 hours, then you have your regular meetings and so on and so forth. Plus, that's a time I try to organize uh, in a way that that perhaps I can benefit personally and develop professionally, which means uh, I do lots of K-12 outreach activities, mm. and it is seasonal. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but on average, every week I spend a few hours on that because that's one of my interests and passion. So I continuously work on that, and I try to involve my students in that. Then in addition to that, I also do what people call research, um, in an academic sense, it is pretty much what I want to pursue outside my immediate teaching. Um, so I pursue those hobbies or interests, uh, sometimes with my other colleagues or sometimes colleagues from other universities. Um, so pretty much every week is a busy week. Um, and it changes uh, every quarter because uh, I teach different classes, so every quarter is different. And then sometimes you decide this is not an interesting topic for me, so I drop that ball and then pick up something new. Uh, so, so in that sense, uh, you know, a week at a time is probably what I see. I don't even see beyond that. Okay. I'm happy if I have a good plan to teach this week. <laughs> the that, that's the truth. Does the beginning of the quarter seem any different than, say, the end of the quarter in how you perceive your courses? Or Yeah, I would say for me, I mean, you know, the beginning of the quarter particularly fall, everybody's ready, coming back from vacation, and it seems like... A lot of optimism. You know, yeah, there's a lot of optimism, and uh, everybody's fresh, and, and engineering being the challenging uh, discipline it is academically, uh, it is, you know, it, after a few weeks, the projects start adding up, and the homework and the like, and you can see it in the students. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, since we're getting ready to make our transition to semesters, we'll see how that works out. Uh, but uh, the quarter system, reasonably fast-paced, and so you see the rise and fall during the, the, the quarter of midterms and the like. Uh, like Java, I, t I tend to, uh, you know, you spend the bulk of your, your week on the mundane, the administrative, the teaching, getting ready the for the grading. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Uh, and then spend uh, other times. Uh, my research tends to be more applied research where I, I'm working on various projects and uh, trying to apply engineering, uh, you know, uh, principles to, I work on solar boat projects. I've worked on a lot of the data acquisition pro systems for various projects around the college. And so, and then just trying to bring some of those into new laboratories, which take a very long time to develop a good laboratory. So uh, anyway, spend a lot of time on that. 
so one thing I think a lot of students don't realize that we have to do is, is a certain portion of our time we're expected to sit on various committees, uh, whether they're committees on, um, uh, in your own department or at the university level. Um, how much of your time do you think that you actually spend on various committees during, um, say, an average 10-week quarter? You had to ballpark it. Well, I, well, of course, we both have uh, weekly departmental meetings mm -hmm. that we attend. Uh, I was a department chair for long, for many years, and of course, they have a lot more meetings to attend. But probably on the the between the official kind of meetings and the unofficial, it's on the order of oh five to ten hours a week that mm -hmm. we spend time. And of course, it's not always at the meeting time, mm -hmm. if you go to the academic senate or you go to today was the day of the advisor, so you, you still have to prep for some of those meetings and be ready, so there is prep time for meetings even. Yeah, the committee time, you know, I try to cut corners uh, <laughs> on that, uh, honestly. Uh, I try to be in committees if I can really contribute something or if I'm productive, so I try to keep myself away from many committee uh, meetings if possible, meaning that I'm not having the responsibilities like a department chair, like what Jerry was talking about. But even with that, my time goes to three to five hours on an average on the low side. Mm -hmm. uh, um, this is not accounting for any other meetings that I do with my outreach. So five, ten hours is, 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 is a reasonable estimate for an average faculty who is not active in committees. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so let's say during, during the middle of, a, of an academic term, um, how many hours a week do you think that you spend on something related to either research, teaching, or committee work? Per week? Uh, yeah, say on a given week. On a given week, you know, if you teach 12 units, you are in the classroom 12 hours. Yeah. Right there. And typically, I need at least three to four hours for preparation for each class. Whether I taught the class in the past or not, it doesn't matter. Every class is new for me. So about 15 hours of teaching time. Yeah. Uh, and then you have direct meeting with students, face-to-face -face meetings, office hours, and usually I end up spending seven, eight, ten hours on a week on that, even though uh, you are ex expected to give a certain minimum number of hours. So that takes about 25 hours with teaching for me, 20 to 25 hours a week uh, teaching. Then the remaining 15, 20 hours is what is left for research and outreach activities. Okay. Yeah, I, I would say that's a, that's a good estimate. I mean, I, I'm certainly on campus more than 40 hours a week, oh. uh, you know, so that, that number came pretty close to 40. And uh, so, and of course, some grading takes home, yeah, yeah. home. In fact, for me, most of the research takes place at home because of typing the paper, communicating with colleagues in other places in other countries, all that takes place at home. And that is not even coming in the hours of your daytime. Yeah. And so you take, you take, and I know, I know for me personally, I take a lot of work home with me and whether it is the grading or the research or the writing or all these other things so for me it's, it's almost like I don't really get a break sometimes but uh it's a choice we make yeah 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 it's part of the job. that's fine yeah so how much of the stuff do you take home do you work on at home oh that's uh, it's gonna be definitely different for everybody I know some people that decide not to take anything home with them if they can help it but uh for me I'd rather be home working than doing the work at my desk, I guess, sometimes, yeah. For me, there is a fixed time, pretty much it has become a routine. Around 10 in the night to 12.30 is my time working on either mm. research or usually I avoid grading at that time. 
I try to do that in school, but that's a productive time. I'm working on a paper or working on some ideas. Mm. So how long did it take you to get comfortable at teaching, at giving out grades, at, at being in front of students talking? Well, I, I think I, I, it depends on each class. Obviously, the more times you teach a class, you get comfortable, more and more comfortable with particular subject areas and, and lectures that you feel. Sometimes, some subjects you feel like you can walk in and be give a good lecture uh, almost off the cuff because you know the topic area. And there's others that even now I'll struggle with how my presentation didn't flow as well as I had hoped it would. And so that's after I've been teaching many of the courses more than 15 years. But they do change over time. I mean, one thing in engineering, the things change. I, I tell my students all the time technologies that I worked on that were totally appropriate technologies have gone away. And, and sometimes they go away for technical reasons. Sometimes they go away for just choice of uh, how the industry proceeded. And so, um, so you always are updating those, which means that uh, you know you you feel a little uncomfortable with those until you've done them three, four, five times, and then it gets more comfortable that way. Grading is always uh, I, I it's just always a little stressful for me. I always feel badly if I feel I didn't know the student well enough when I'm going to, after I've done my spreadsheets and I look over my grades and I say, well, did I really assess that student properly, particularly the low ones, you know, and, and try and think about that student in more details. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's part of the job and you got to assign the grades. And if you have your numbers, you generally feel comfortable with the grade assignments. Uh, comfortable with teaching. I mean, um, I think I have changed as a teacher, as a professor in the last 15, 20 years myself, the way of teaching, style of teaching. But I think I was comfortable on even day one, even though I wasn't sure if I was <laughs> doing any better. Um, I was terrified. I know that I distinctly remember the first day of my teaching in America. I was terrified inside, but I put up a show and I think it came out well. And I did the two or three more days and then I got really comfortable. So in that sense, I became very comfortable right away. Uh, but what makes me even now uncomfortable before I go to the class is if I have a concept for which I cannot find a real simple explanation, that bothers me a lot. Mm. So everything that I have to teach, whether it's an old class or a new class, it really doesn't matter. If I cannot come up with something very simple to explain, a story to tell about it, or something that most other people will think of, why didn't I think of it? If I cannot come up with something like that for any concept, I get very uncomfortable inside. That means I feel that I really do not have a grasp of that material. Yeah. Um, and that moment happens even now. <laughs> so how do you um, keep yourself you know, up to date with what's currently um, occurring at the industry, what's, what's, um, what they require? So, so for me, I, I'm active in two... Um, uh, societies, uh, technical societies, IEEE is the uh, main uh, society for electrical engineers. And uh, I got involved in a project here on campus, an instrumentation project, and I became involved in a group called the Internet Inter 
Instrumentation Society of America, and it's morphed into the International Society of Automation, automation and instrumentation kind of going together a little bit in the industrial sense. And so I attend those meetings on, you know, uh, at least once a month for both of those groups. Um, the one thing I think we're blessed with in Southern California is there's a lot of technical uh, seminars, conferences, user groups available. You don't have to drive very far mm -hmm. to Orange County or to towards LA to to have conferences freely available for you. Mm -hmm. Most of them are no cost or low cost, and uh, since you're driving, and so I keep uh, as active as I can in those areas because uh, there's lots of availability for that. I agree with Jerry here on, you know, there's professional societies, uh, conferences that I go to every year. But in addition to that, I think the social media has become big. Um, I have subscribed to many newsletters that are of interest to me on design, engineering, education, pedagogy. So you get regular newsletters from these organizations as well as I am part of these groups in the social media. So uh, there is wealth of information that is coming out every day. The question is how to keep up with every day. That is, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's much easier today than 15 years ago. Yeah. So how, how would you recommend students? So the, the classroom experience is going to be very different than what it, it's like to work in a company. How can students approach their courses and their coursework to, to better prepare them for what it's like when they go off and go into industry, if they go into industry to get a, a job? Well, I, I usually tell the students, you know, we're, we're lucky on our side of the, the teaching because we always present problems where we know the answers, right? And that's the old math, math professor joke, right? They know the answer, it hasn't changed in 300 years. But uh, what I try to stress to them is that just be, you know, we're trying to teach them approach to problem solving because, and of course we know the answer at the end so we can tell whether they followed the approach properly. But when they're outside, and particularly in industry, you don't know the answer, right? But you still got to have a kind of disciplined approach to, to work at what you know and work towards what you don't know to solve those problems. And uh, of course, a lot of industry, you're kind of evaluating how could I change a system to uh, a new system and what, what advantages it might have. So you got to do your research to uh, try and figure out, to assess things uh, for um, the pluses and minuses. So that, that's kind of my approach on, on you know, how to approach problems in, in class and then afterwards. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly a disconnect in some level. Um, we are a hands-on university. Uh, we provide a lot more lab experience uh, than many other schools. But even, even with all that being said, I think uh, we are still lagging behind uh, um, when we compare to the industry. Um, and probably we may never be able to fill that gap. One way for the students to meet that would be to be uh, get some kind of an internships and mm. things like that at the university, at the, at the industry, so I encourage that. Uh, but one thing I like to tell all my students at all levels is the following. Somehow they come up with an impression that there is a step-by-step -step process to solve all the problems. You follow this procedure and you get the answer. It may be true for certain narrow problems, but in general industry doesn't work like this. As Jerry said, there are no 
one answer they have to learn and we as faculty should also focus more on that telling them there is multiple answers for the same problem uh, and that needs not just an approach also an attitude for learning and somehow we need to bring that to our students and make them understand that you have to approach a problem not just as a way to uh, follow a, a strict guideline and get a solution that means anybody can do that you don't really need to be an engineer there need to be a certain amount of critical thinking to go outside and look for um, answers. And then even when you get an answer, you don't know if that's right or wrong. Uh, so that involves testing and, 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 and simulations and things like that. So I think we got to bring that experience more for our students on how to think, how we can solve a problem in multiple ways and get different answers and then see which may be the best approach. Um, that would be very beneficial when they go to the industry. One way to gain that uh, is for our students to go and get some internships and things like that and, and work with design engineers. And, and I learned a lot, certainly, when I was working in the industry. Even I, I thought I wasn't doing anything, but then later I recall, I see there's lots of uh, feedback you get by just being in an environment where a bunch of people are working. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, yeah, um, um, there, is, uh, there is a difference, even though we try to provide, we do create industry-ready engineers compared to most schools. But having said that, even with all that, there is a gap and that we got to figure out a way to fill it. Yeah. Textbooks are certainly behind. Labs are not uh, having the most modern equipment that the industry is using. So that disconnect is still there and I think it's true for all universities. And, and one of the big challenges too, I think, is that we're, for every class, we're required to teach a certain number of concepts. And it'd be great if we could maybe take a, a deep dive on one or two of those to, to you know, give them a longer term project. But then if that'll be at the sacrifice of all these other concepts that we won't have time for. That's a good question. Uh, but here's the thing. If you drop a bunch of concepts, nobody yeah. would know. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever the whatever the follow up question would be or uh, the course would be, they might know. nobody would ever know. Yeah. Neither the students nor the faculty. That's true. Uh, so so really, as a faculty, we can choose a few things where we have to focus and where we can um, not necessarily put all our emphasis on all the concepts equally. And so I think we can do that. <laughs> so if if a student, uh, let's say it's um, summer break and a student's about to start your course in a week or two. What kind of advice would you give to that student, or do you give to your students, um, about how to prepare before the term actually begins? Well, for preparation before before I don't I don't know how ready they even if I told them would they prepare. Uh, maybe some I, I'd certainly say well of course have your books ready so when when you're ready just come to class, you, you've got the support material that's uh, for, needed for the course, and you can always read ahead and read uh, the preface and the introduction of a book, which students rarely do, uh, because the author usually tries to clue you in as to the, what his philosophy is. Um, but I, I really am more concerned that on day one, they are ready to go and be involved and participating fully in the class. It's a challenging discipline, engineering, and but if you're not putting the effort into it, you're not going to get what you want out of it. So when you come, be ready. Put your phone away. You know, be ready to listen to the lecture and participate. Um, 
it's in the last five years I have been experimenting with an approach that seems to work for me. Uh, I send out an email to all the students a week or 10 days before as soon as the list is available. Um, an elaborate email uh, welcoming them to the class and say that I'm excited to be their instructor and that I look forward to learning together with them. But then I also go down and say that in order to make that experience successful, I would like you to do the following. And typically that depends on the course, what I ask them to do. I, if you ask them to read a chapter, they won't read. If you ask them to watch something boring, they're not going to watch. So I really spend some time trying to figure out what is it that I want my students to know on day one so they kind of have a level playing field. Because when all these students come in on day one, they are not on a level playing field. There are some students who have taken maybe four AP classes and there are students who struggled and got there somehow. And there are some students with family problems or there are some students, you know, coming after a big party. I don't know. The <laughs> idea is they are not on a level playing field. And, and it is very difficult for them to go and say, review all the trigonometry or calculus before they come. And nobody's going to do that or very rarely any students do. So I stay away from that kind of a general uh, request, read this and come. Uh, and if you think of myself, uh, if somebody sends me an email before a workshop, read all these, I never read it. Um, even now I get these material, we have a workshop, please go through all this material, I don't. So I don't expect my students to go through. So I really try to distill that down to something really very important, simple concept for which I identify a resource which I'm very happy. It could be a short five minutes video clip or it may be a program on a TV or something like that. I would say, you know, this is what I want you to know. So on day one, you can be running and you will feel good and probably you may even do well if I give a quiz on this. Mm. So I kind of tell them, plead them, but then I send out a follow-up email after a few days, have you had a chance to look at it? It's very important. And usually I found out after a couple of emails, most students spend that five, 10 minutes or 20 minutes to go over the material because they think, man, this guy is, on this for some reason. So let's click on this link and see what happens. Mm. And usually that helps because when they come and I talk about it, I continue, they understand your style, they understand your expectation, they know that you are genuinely interested in them learning, and therefore they become a little bit more receptive for your new ideas. So that's what I do. Mm. So from your point of view, what are a couple of the biggest mistakes students make throughout the quarter in their engineering courses where if they didn't, it could potentially make a really big difference in, in how they learn and, and how they perform in the other grade ultimately in the course. Well, I, I'd go back to what I previously said, that the, mm. the lack of preparation and lack of involvement. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the whole reason a professor or a lecturer or, you know, is there is to add to the subject matter beyond the book, if you will. Yeah. And so if you're not participating in that way, you're missing that extra presentation side of the story. Ajawa, I know he spends a lot of time trying to get down to core principles, and I've seen the videos, and, and he spends a lot of time to try and make it easy uh, to understand and then let the numbers kind of come later. And uh, if, you're, if you're not coming and participating and being involved, you're missing out on that and you're really kind of throwing your money away. Anybody can read a book, right? Okay, you just don't do it. And uh, so if you're not participating that way, that's the real way you're going to get in trouble. We, we are responsible for bringing 
literally hundreds of years of engineering knowledge into coursework. And if you want to try and learn all that on your own, that's fine. But uh, you're going to, if, using us as your help, we can guide you through the more important and more salient features and, and knowledge that you need. Yeah, clearly, you know, I agree with Jerry on whatever he said that lack of preparation is a major issue as well as um, um, participation. But if I have to give some specific advice, I would add a few things. One, students miss a class or don't understand a material for whatever reason. This is very common. You are dealing with a complex material and, and the, the concept that the professor explains seemed understandable, but then you don't understand. When that happens, most students kind of forget about it and then come to the next class. One thing that can make a significant difference, and I say this again in my class to my students, is when you don't understand at the end of the class something or when a new concept or when you cannot solve a problem independently on your own, that means you have certain weakness. You got to fix it between this class and the next class. So if you have a class on a Thursday and you're coming back Tuesday, you got four days to fix it. Either go to your office hours of the professor and ask, hey, look, I really didn't understand what you talked about. That won't offend me at all uh, because they're coming back they're coming to me to ask a question on a fresh material. What, would, what normally happens is students let this go for a two or three classes, then it becomes too late because they are so far behind and, and every concept builds on the previous concept. And when they come back and ask a question on seventh week, that is from a second week, I really can't help them much. So the single, the most important advice is if you have difficulty understanding a concept or you missed a class for some reason that you had to catch up, catch up before the next class. I know it's hard to implement, but if you can do that, that alone can save a student from failing to probably a B. Because what happens is they just lag behind and then the next class they're actually even behind and they will never make it. Uh, because everything is related. We are not teaching independent topics totally, you know, different. So that's uh, an advice. And that also they can interact with the professor and maybe work with a group of students. They got to figure out a way to do that. I think that's one major advice I have for students. Uh, second thing is the importance of homework. I know the homework is not taken seriously, but I tell my students, if you do your homework on your own, most of the time I don't even look at the homework. I give them the full grade if they have, seem to have done mm -hmm. the homework because that is to encourage. But that also promotes many students to copy homework. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that if they can sit and do a well-selected homework problems that are based on the lecture, if they can solve them independently, I think they mastered the material. So, but many of the students don't take that attitude for the homework. They just want to somehow get it done and get the 10 person. That's a second um, point that I would like to bring it up uh, that is connected to the first one where they have to be on top of the material every, every week. Yeah, I would It's agree. like a specific advice I have mm -hmm. for my students to. I would agree learning. with Java on the homework. I think too many students, and we understand engineering is challenging, background and there's more a sense did you get the right answer is there an answer in the back of the book and they will rearrange equations until they get the right number yeah. and of course that's not learning the material I mean I, I remember taking an online te uh, course and you only had two or three chances to submit your answer so, you know, you had, if you missed it the first time, then you really had to go back and make sure 
you 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 understood the principles because if you just randomly entered data, then you would not get close enough uh, to uh, to get graded. And that was a very powerful lesson to learn. And because I, if I missed them, and I missed plenty of them, I I would just it was a challenge. Now I need to understand it well enough to get it the second time. So we understand that you'd like to get the answer in the back of the book, but you really do need to understand how you're, you're doing your homework. As a faculty, what we also can do is, I have drastically cut down on the number of, for example, homework problems. Sometimes in the mm. past, I have seen people do like 20 questions. That may take several hours to take, uh, to, to solve, if you really sit down and solve it. Um, so I kind of solve the problem myself and see how long it takes. If it takes for me an hour, the students may need three hours. Mm -hmm. So in order to encourage them to do that, you got to give them less homework, but insist on them doing it independently. And again, um, if you keep saying this to the students, bulk of the students will follow. There will be a few students who probably are not going to do that anyway, but most of the students will say, oh my God, that's working. I have four or five questions a week. I can do it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something, a change that faculty can make, giving a reasonable amount of work per course. Because if I give 20 questions in my course, they have three other courses to do. Who are they going to blame and how are they going to deal with it? So we got to also think from a student perspective, how much work we give them and how much of their work is actually meaningful in mastering the concept. Yeah, just to build on that, I recently, just last week, I had a professor come down from, uh, a colleague come from uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and his daughter was in an engineering course, and, and he was trying to help her with her homework, and he was <laughs> stunned at the amount of time she was having to spend <laughs> for her courses, and it got him thinking, better to fine-tune those questions rather than just have a lot of them. And I think that we can all learn that. Mm -hmm. So we've all, well, I assume we all had the experience of, of being in the middle of a class and asking the students a question and getting a bunch of blank stares. Um, so how, how do you feel when that happens? First of all, has it happened? It happens to all of us. Okay, yes. yeah. And then how, how does that make you feel when, when it happens in one of your classes? Well, of course, you, you feel like the sage on the stage, everybody should be listening to every word. But of course, we're, we've been through this material many times, so we know the salient facts we're trying to pull out. So you just try and add a little bit more. And I, I do a lot of interactive calling on my students in the class. And there are certain students that I know will respond with, positive answers or some some contribution, some will not. And uh, I, I just try and cajole them into being involved. And if they're being involved, I'm not going to leave them, lead them off a cliff with a question. So if they're involved, they ought to be able to contribute some part of that answer. That's a very good question because it leads to one of my favorite situation, I call it awkward silence. Uh, so you ask a question and there's a pin drop silence and you repeat the question and nobody is answering. So that kind of a silence is something I like because um, it can be one of two things. One is your question is probably totally out of lean. It happens sometimes you think that the students know and you ask a question that they actually don't know. Or maybe you haven't formulated the questions very well. Uh, so in a way that's a feedback for myself. So I usually reformulate the question and if that's a 
good learning atmosphere, students will start attempt answering. Not necessarily they all give the correct answer, but they start attempting um, in, in their own way, hey, maybe this. Now, usually I, then I start going around the class and make students to respond and finally we'll get some meaning out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but that kind of an awkward silence is a learning experience for both students and faculty. Uh, for faculty, sometimes the questions are totally uh, irrelevant that they don't understand or may, most of the time the question is formulated that they are scared of answering. Mm -hmm. uh, because I do not believe you have 30, 40 students in a class and none of them can answer a relevant question. Then there is something seriously wrong. <laughs> so I expect them to answer. So most of the time when I ask a question like this, I think about it, I reformulate it. And then I also ask the question in a way that makes them to respond. Or some students want to answer, not necessarily to show that they don't know the answer or ridicule them for not knowing or ridiculing for a response. Mm -hmm. Because if you have done that in the past, ridicule a student for a response, then they're not going to talk again in your class ever. Yeah. So, so it, it, it's a very loaded question in that sense. Uh, it's not that the students, sometimes it could be the faculty. <laughs> well, and to the student that might listen to this, I mean, the faculty fully expect that you won't have the 100% answer. We maybe we're hoping for 50%, 75%, but we know there are other factors in your your answer that will be, you know, relevant and some not. So we understand that we don't expect 100% exactly. answers all the time. If we can lead them, uh, most of the time a student responds to it depends on the question and the subject. In a design class, you can lead them to some interesting designs from different responses. So um so I think, I think creating some awkward silence moments are good learning experience mm. for both faculty and students. And sometimes the answers kind of point out factors that might be somewhat important, but not the key mm. point that you were uh, trying to elicit. In fact, there are responses sometimes I have never, ever expected, and then that threw me off. So that's, uh, it happened, you know, um, a few times. Mm. So this quarter, there's going to be some students who are not going to be passing your courses. They'll get a D or F and, and have to repeat the course. How, does, how do you feel when you, at the end of the quarter, assign a certain you know, percentage of students uh, Ds and Fs? I am a, I'm pretty much detached to that process. I have a worksheet. It has numbers. It has no names, <laughs> no pictures. So I look at my class. All the students are the same, and my grading is totally disconnected. But having said that, I do use slightly a different approach. I tell this to my students on day one. Uh, some professors tell, you know, look at your right and left, and then only one of you are going to make it in the class. In my class, I tell all my students, you all start with an A in my class. The fact that you are here, that means you chose to be here, right, in my class. That means you want to be successful, you want to get an A. So we start with an A in my class. So if you want to get an F, you got to really earn it. So it's just the other way around. It's, it's nothing, I'm not doing anything differently. My standards are the same or if not uh, more strict. But it's just the way you position. I tell my students, all of you come with an A to my class. And depending upon your performance, you sustain, maintain, and go further beyond it or you go below. Yeah. Uh, so if they get an F, uh, they actually earned it. You should do a study where in one class you give the more positive 
you know, everyone starts with an A, and then next quarter you can do every, oh, you look around you, two people are not going to be here by the end of the term, and see which, which class does better. <laughs> That's a good, good, you no, got to get a psychologist to do that. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would agree with Joe. I, I really feel like if you get an F and even a D, you earned it. You did not put in the time and effort. Uh, some of the strategies I, I like to use, I usually give a... Uh, a short, you know, 10 or 15 minute quiz every second or third uh, lecture session. And so you, they have, they know right away if they're behind, mm -hmm. if they're not, if, and I will write on their paper, see me, exactly. you know, or I don't do sad exactly. faces on them, but I knew a faculty member that did that. And uh, so if they're, they're clearly out of the, I often try and give the mean and the standard deviation also to give them some idea. But they, they, they know if they haven't done well on that, uh, that, that quiz or they just turned in homework without really understanding it. So I, I, I don't feel bad about it. I, I like Java. I use a spreadsheet and I run the numbers and, uh, you know, and I drop low quizzes and things awesome. like that yeah. too to kind of put a curve in there. But they, if they fall in that DF category, they, they, they know why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one job that I, I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about the the amount of time that we have to put in each week in you know, teaching research committee work. One thing I forgot to mention was writing letters of recommendation. <laughs> um, so, ha first of all, how often do you write letters of recommendation for students? And then, what are the sort of proper ways in your mind of um, asking for a letter of recommendation, and whom should you ask the letter of recommendation from? What, yeah, what, what's your relationship with the instructor well, you, you asked? It's funny you ask it this time, because this is we just finished the prime season for applications, January and December, and then into February, and uh, I've written at least 20 wow. this past, and that's exhausting. Um, it, it, it does take time. Uh, students need to realize that you know, I do not like, they don't, maybe don't know this, but generally now it's all online and we have to answer a, a kind of a short uh, kind of checkbox. You know, where would you rate this student? 1%, 5%, 10%, and then on a probably five or 10 different question or, or areas. And then we have to uh, do a letter. Um, now, for me, I always do my letters on letterhead from the university, which is a little more involved process than you think, because you've got to print it on a printer with letterhead, and then I have to sign it, and then I have to scan it, and then attach it as a PDF file. So that process is, is a, almost a half an hour process sometimes to do that. And then uh, for me, I always want to be able to put something personal in that mm -hmm. recommendation letter so that the student, you know, it, it, it is more than just, I knew this student, I think they're great kind of thing. You know, I try to list something out that I can remember about that student. Probably the most frustrated I get with that process is when, two things, when students ask me uh, to write a letter then they did not do very well in my class. Uh, that is, that's hard for me to be overwhelmingly positive on that kind of letter. 
you know, and so that's a challenge. And then secondly, when they ask you to write letters for multiple universities, five yeah. or ten, and uh, that, that you need, that shows to me a lack of research on their part, narrowing down what kind of program they're really looking for. So I want to know that you're serious, that you're, I'm taking the time to be serious about the letter. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very time-consuming job. I'm glad you mentioned it because that didn't go into any of the hours that I talked about it yes. earlier. <laughs> uh, I write lots of recommendation letters, 10, 15, a quarter on an average. Mm. Uh, the letters are for sometimes graduate school, sometimes very few employers ask for it, but they do ask for some reference letters and employers, but sometimes, many times for scholarships. Yeah. Um, and I think it's our responsibility, so I, I never say no to a student as long as they have taken a class with me or they have done projects with me. Uh, uh, but it takes a long time for me to write a good letter because, as Jerry said, writing a letter saying that I know this student and he's good has absolutely no value. If I'm getting <laughs> a letter like that about a student, that means it's not personal. You will have to talk about something personal about their project or, or how they did it. depends on what the letter is uh, uh, address, uh, meant for. So it does take time for me. Um, uh, but I think it's part of our job because ultimately, why are we here? We are here to help our students to go to industry and be successful or, or go to graduate school and, 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 and do well. So if you want to do that, we have to help them. That's, uh, that's part of our responsibility, so I never say no. Um, but it is, it is uh, the problem is when the students come in and the deadline is two days from then or next day, that drives me really crazy. I get upset. Um, that's one thing I, I don't like because you do need time to write. And I got to review the letter. And, and in a way, we are projecting Cal Poly through that letter. I don't want to have any mistakes on the letter. Uh, so someone has to you know, read and proofread the letter. But I do save time because I do have an online template on my mm -hmm. Word file. So I don't have to print. I can do it from home, all of that, on a PDF file. Uh, that, makes, uh, that saves me some time. Um, another mistake students make is that um, sometimes they give you a name as a reference to somebody and they don't tell you. Oh yeah, it's a big And you get a, you get a call from an employee, I'm asking, calling you to um, um, check on Justin. Which Justin? I got 25 <laughs> Justins, you know? And then you don't want to say anything negative because he was your student and you want that kid yeah. to be successful. But he didn't even have a, or she didn't have the courtesy to tell you, look, I gave your name as a reference and here is, so those are all the stuff that students should know. If you want a faculty recommendation, make sure you reach out them early on, early. Mm -hmm. Give them enough time, two, three weeks to write a letter, mm -hmm. uh, number one. Number two, um, if you want to give your name as a reference, I always ask a resume, so I paste it on my wall, so when somebody calls, I can see, okay, that's the student mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Because we deal with hundreds, I, I deal with 200 students on average every quarter. Uh, so, so I have to know who they are calling about, and most of these names are common names. Uh, so those are the two tips I have for students. Yeah, I, I would agree with the, the um, reference calls, because oftentimes you get that call when you're walking between buildings or going to a parking right. lot, and they mispronounce names oftentimes. And so if I've had the email ahead of time, and I know that I may get a call within a week or 10 days or two weeks, Something. then I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I've seen the resume, I've reviewed it, and I can speak 
as well as possible. But if you haven't given me warning, like Jawa says, we see in, in two or three quarters, we'll, we will be 200, 300 people beyond where they were. And you just can't remember everybody. I said this fresh. because I had a student who graduated two years ago. I got a call like two days ago about the student. He's trying to switch a job. But I gave him a recommendation letter and all that stuff. So he knows, but still he didn't give me a warning yeah. that he used my name as a reference. And, uh, you know, <laughs> of course, I gave a good reference because I remember the name, but he didn't want me. So, <laughs> Did, uh, Do you care if the student asks you in person versus email? I, I don't care. No, as long as, uh, as long as they were my student, I'll, I'll, I'll usually remember them. And so uh, I do go check their records ahead of time. Certainly when I write my recommendation letters, I'll go into the database and look and see how they did in my classes, how many classes they took, and I usually incorporate that in the letter. And uh, so I, as long as I have notification, I check email, so. Yeah, I mean, pretty much the same process, yeah. Okay. So you've been doing this teaching thing for a while. Um, what's the best part, the best one or two things? about teaching for you that, that, that's made you stay here for so long? Well, I, I maybe I feel it more now, <laughs> but I mean, they keep you young. The students mm. always keep you young because they're the same age, even if you are growing older. And as long as I don't look in the mirror too often, I feel pretty young with my <laughs> students. And, and that's, that's a nice feature. I, I think I, in some people or colleagues that I may go back and see and they've worked at a place as long as I've worked here, they seem older to me. Uh, press, many professors seem like they're, I know Jawa always seems young to me. Professor Sutton in electrical engineering, he was my instructor and I see him every month at my our, uh, IEEE meeting and he still seems like a pretty young thinking guy to me. So I, I think that's what I like the best about teaching. Yeah, it certainly keeps you young um, because all your students are teenagers or maybe adolescents. So it's, it's a good to be with young people all the time. Uh, that's number one. But I think, um, um, I have, you know, as I said, I was in the industry. I worked as an engineer, you know, regular jobs. I was an entrepreneur. Um, teaching and working in an academic setting is very different in the sense it allows you to pursue many of your passions. You can try different styles of teaching. I have played with so many different ideas that I don't think I could do it somewhere else. Uh, plus, sometimes when you see the result of those ideas, that is very satisfying. Um, it's not just teaching a class. We also teach design, how to make things. You know, that's part of engineering, right? So there is something inherently satisfying to me when you conceive an idea and then make that idea into a reality. That is, maybe you made a 3D printout of your idea, or maybe you've manufactured it, uh, or you made a gadget, or your students made a gadget together with you in a discussion. You know, you're an advisor for a group of students uh, doing senior project or a class project. Ultimately, these ideas become real, uh, real objects. For me, that is very deeply satisfying to see something from an imagination to make it a reality. In that sense, I truly believe engineers make realities, you know, dreams come true. <laughs> uh, so that's deeply satisfying in a situation. I mean, this could happen in the industry as well, but you, here you are working with a group of young students who didn't have any previous experience and taking them from know nothing to something fascinating is deeply satisfying for me. That's, 
I think, yeah. Yeah, I, I think following up on Java, I think not only young feeling, you feel young uh, technologically because mm. you're able to see developments over yeah. time. Mm. I, when you know, you work at a company a long time, and you, I tell students all the time that you know, after a few years at a company, your knowledge of that company is really more important than your technical knowledge, mm. and and that's to be expected. You know, they want they hired you to understand their systems and improve their systems, but we get to see it kind of from a fresh view all the time, and and so we see changes in one discipline react into other disciplines, uh, the 3D printing and mechanical. I can see that, how that's revolutionized mechanical engineering projects and students' design. And of course, there's ever-increasing CAD and simulation programs that are just pushing the edge all the time. Yeah. I think for me, my favorite part is I get to, definitely, I mean, I'm not too old, uh, but you you feel like you're constantly up to date with what's going on mm -hmm. in society because you, you hear students talk about certain things mm -hmm. and but That's also right. my one of the things I really like is that to a large extent we get to set our own schedules I mean we have to set right. certain times right. we're in our office that we're in the classroom mm -hmm. but like on Thursdays I'm just free to do writing mm -hmm. or research or whatever I feel of like. Course, of yeah. course, flexibly. I may add one more thing uh, when you see the success of your students mm. that is another um, source of um, happiness it's just they're like, you know, like your kids, right? I mean, uh, you see them, somebody uh, is moving on who was struggling in your class two, three years ago, and now that person becomes leading a team in a company, or, or uh, I have a lawyer now who calls me every now and then, say, Professor Java, I'm, you know, do you remember me? It was, I'm a lawyer now, district attorney, <laughs> LA. <laughs> he was a mechanical engineering student. So it's kind of nice to see our students being successful. Um, I think uh, that's, again, something you don't get everywhere. Mm. Well, speaking of kids, I was, uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you guys about is how do you balance work and life? <laughs> and I know Jawa said that he, from 10 to 1230, I think I have the time right, that's your... Research or yeah, exploration time. That's your time. But, uh, yeah, but how do you balance those two? But you don't. <laughs> uh, that's a straight answer. But having said that, I have come to a different... Uh, I was thinking about this question today as I was driving. Um, the balance is a more mechanical word. So when you try to balance, ultimately you're going to fail because you're trying to juggle how long you can juggle, three, four, five. So you have family, you, within the university you have teaching, research, service, students, projects, uh, consulting, and then within family you have starting from vacuuming the house to grocery buying, you know, whatever that is, right? So there are so many things going on. Um, so if you try to balance all of that, in my opinion, you'll fail. So you drop a few of those balls just right away. Uh, so, um, so you prioritize what you got to do. Um, that's number one. Number two, I prefer, I read an article not too long ago, instead of balancing because which is purely mechanical and somehow you juggle your schedule to get things done, which is not going to be satisfying you figure out a harmony. Uh, so what I say is it's not work-life balance, it's work-life harmony, meaning you only do mutually satisfying. That means um, I have a friend who runs marathons and his wife hated him for running. He said, honey, I don't have time. Either you choose me or running. 
but he loves his wife. So what he figured out is, you know what, let's go for a run and got her addicted to running. Mm. So now they both run together. So it's not anymore balancing. It's, it's actually they are having fun together. So that approach is what we need. You choose what you are passionate about. My work is at home as well. It's not very different when I'm thinking about doing research or something. My family knows a lot about it. Um, so you have to figure out a way to uh, find your passion, prioritize it, and drop everything else, at least for a certain period of time. That way you would have more of a work-life harmony than balance. Uh, that's what I try to do. So I develop a new hobby. I get my whole family involved in it. So that way there is no balancing there. Everybody wants to do the same thing, right? Uh, and I do the same thing with my students. So I don't know. I'm trying to figure this out, really. I don't think balancing works very well. Yeah, I, I would agree with Jawa. I, you know, it's, it's harmony is probably a better word than balance. And it does change over your your own career, right? Because when you're young, you have young kids, you do what has to be done, done for those young kids. And that's that means soccer practice, that means school projects, and you do that when it's needed. Um, I generally when I'm at school, I'm I'm doing I'm all involved with that. I don't try to balance during that time. <laughs> uh, I balance when I'm on vacation, I'll I'll be all in on the family. And or doing my, not trying to do my research when I, it's family time. I don't teach in the summer because I feel that's a time where I can kind of okay. catch that's up right. on mm -hmm. the uh, myself and and the family. And I know Java travels. I travel, uh, you know. And so my my two daughters are not engineers. They don't want to be technical anything. His daughters, a couple of them, are more technical. But you know, you do what what you feel is necessary for the the family and uh, and and you 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 as they say you want to be whether you're in class or on vacation you want to be in that mode right mm -hmm. in vacation mode you're in vacation mode in work mode you're in work mode and that's the kind of harmony it may not be very balanced during the quarter I do very little travel I, I'm mostly about school and work but finals get turned in I hopefully will have some. Uh, family time to do that. So how has, um, how has teaching changed for you since you started and how have the students changed uh, since you started teaching compared to now? Yeah, I, when I, yeah, I saw that question, um, I, I wondered a little bit. I think, you know, in, when I started out uh, teaching, it was, I remember we would have large, long discussions as faculty about picking the best textbook, you know, because back then it was mostly find the best textbook, go through the material, and that, that was the goal. And uh, now that's completely irrelevant. I mean, textbooks are good, but there's so many other sources of information with the internet and Wikipedia. I know some don't like that, but I find it fascinating to go down those Wikipedia searches after hour after hour. And, uh, and the students obviously know that also. They have the internet in their pockets. So I, I do think, um, I think the old previous students, the, you know, they were a little bit more inclined to, when you told them to do something, they would follow that path. Uh, and so you would do these homework problems, you do that, and they would follow that textbook path. 
Uh, the modern student is a lot less focused on that. Uh, you know, that, like I said, the internet in your pocket, you know, there's a time for internet work and YouTube and the rest, but uh, I, I think it is, uh, it's a challenge for the modern professor to kind of keep them involved. And that's where being involved, at least for that hour and 15 to whatever in the classroom, you want to be focused on that class because that's what we're there for. And, and we can't help you if you won't let us and, uh, you know, work with us on attention. This is um, a question that I think is totally open. I'm not even sure how to answer that, but both teaching has changed and students have changed. Uh, in terms of technology, there's new tools we have. I mean, we don't have to even tell what those tools are. There is so many tools that we have today that was not there 20 years ago. Uh, in many ways, that makes teaching hopefully more effective, or at least these tools are available for you to use it. But the larger question is about students. The students have certainly changed. I can't imagine myself in a classroom 30, 40 years ago. I wasn't the same student that we have today. Now, for the past four or five years, you know, I hear that the students are not interested in doing anything. And I hear from academic circles, these students are not interested in learning. They want something fast. But more and more I think about it, I think the current set of students or this new generation of students are actually smarter than us, number one. We don't want to acknowledge that, but that is true. They are a lot smarter because of a lot more uh, information at disposal and they have got a different experience than us. They have cell phone, internet, so they are a lot more knowledgeable than us. That's number one. Second, they have a very short attention span. Now, that is negative because we would sit in a class and listen for two-hour lectures. They can't. Now, I view this bec uh, differently because it's not that they cannot focus. thing is we didn't have a choice. They have other venues to get information. They have other ways of getting the same thing done much more quickly than a boring two or three hour lecture. Mm. Uh, so the question becomes, so it, it irritates us when you have a student who cannot sit down five, 10 minutes and listen to you. It bothers me, but I also recognize that they are not willing to put up with nonsense. I mean, can you do it differently because someone else is doing differently and better? Or they go to a YouTube and say, my God, this concept is better explained by this guy than your three-hour lecture. So we have to also look at that from that perspective and change our way of thinking because if we go back with the same, same way we were taught and we want to teach our kids that same way, it doesn't work. Mm. So I want to acknowledge the current generation of students are smarter. They want to learn. There's no question about it. And they're eager to learn. We'll have to find ways to engage them. Yeah, I, I do agree. Um, you know, it's both two students and teaching has changed. Uh, you know, it is, as Java says, I mean, it, it does the short attention span, if you want to put it that way, does drive you to be more critical about your own presentations and lectures where previous years, it wouldn't matter if you just wrote equations all 45 or an hour and 15 and let them copy everything. I had professors like that. I didn't, didn't particularly enjoy it. 
But on the flip side, it is a little annoying to us as professors <laughs> <No> that <question. laughs> within 10 to 15 minutes of the course class starting, someone walks out to go to the restroom, to go get a drink of water, and it's like... Checking their you, cell phone so You yeah. just came, and you couldn't last that long. Yeah. I know I'm not that boring. You know, that you, you do... That's a little disheartening sometimes that they um, are, are too yeah. too quick to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree. I mean, um, that relates more of an attitude, I think, or... or, or um, in that context, I, what I want to add is every one of us, or at least I have certain idiosyncrasy. So I tell my students what I really don't like mm. on day one. And honestly, it works for me. On day one, I tell them there are a few things that I don't like. I, it, it's not because it's right or wrong. It just annoys me. There are certain things I just can't put up with. It's my nature and, and help me so I won't be in that situation. I tell my students. I don't like somebody walking into my class after I'm in the class. I don't like it. It distracts me. And I never take attendance. So if you don't come to my class, you're not going to be penalized. You may miss a quiz, but you're not going to be penalized for not being in my class, right? But don't come late to my class. Don't walk out of my class. If you come here, stay. So it works for me. I have never seen a student coming late to my class in the last five years. Or some students will mm. come and say that I'm going to be 10 minutes late to the class because is that okay if I come in? So I set up some of these rules and people do tell me that this guy sometimes is weird about some of his rules, such as whining is not allowed, you know, you don't come and ask me for extension on anything because I just, that pushes me off that balance, yeah. right? So if you are upfront with your students about some of these things that I don't like anybody coming late, this is something I really hate, it bothers me, it distracts me, I cannot teach very well, they follow. Uh, so I put up actually in my in my syllabus that do's and don'ts in my class. And I don't put a big list, like two or three items. So they know, okay, this is something. Uh, that's one way to avoid, and they don't question that because that is your style. Mm. If you want to be in my class, this is the ground rule. So if you want to play a game with me, these are all the rules you follow. Mm. I set that up on day one, and, and it works fairly well. Ex exceptions are always there. So something like that may help. But again, having said that, yeah, That'll be annoying if somebody just goes to a bathroom in the middle of your, you know, you are excited about your teaching and, and there's a door screeching and have somebody chewing a big sandwich in front of you and stuff like that, you know, I, I get it. Well, I do want to be mindful of your time. I just have one more question for you both. Um, what advice would you have for students, say, in your classes who may one day want to be like you, who might want to be teaching? Well, as we, we, we both said at the beginning, we kind of both fell into teaching from a passion or a, a, a explaining technical things to other people and being from, you know, and working to make those explanations better and better. So I think if you want to, you know, you have a passion for teaching, you know, certainly you want to become technically proficient. And whether that means going out and, and working in your desired field and then coming back or graduate studies, you know, which is the more typical path for professors. I, I, you know, certainly if you pursue graduate studies, you will probably get the opportunity to be in the class or be in a recitation or something like that. And you will know pretty, pretty soon whether or not you enjoy that or not. It's not a, it's not a power trip, you know, in that way. You, you either like that 
explaining and being rewarded for working on a good simple explanation or not. I encourage all my students to go to graduate school and become a professor. And I've been trying to do that for 10 years, probably three or four of them are on that path now. It's very less, but uh, because I think it's a, it's really um, a nice job to be a professor as a job, because as you said earlier, uh, your schedule is flexible, you teach what you love to teach, sometimes you may teach what you don't like, but overall, you, in general, you teach what you like to teach, and then you are working with young students, and plus you can pursue your passion for research in many different ways. You know, uh, so, so I think, I mean, if you want to be a multimillionaire, probably this is not the job for you. Uh, but you can you can have a good lifestyle with this job and you can do additional things on top of it. The job is very flexible. So I encourage all our students to go to graduate st school. Uh, that means they got a plan. That's the problem. Like I have students who come like third or fourth year. They got inspired and they want to be a professor and their GPA is like 2.2. They can't go to graduate school. <laughs> uh, so, so this is something we got to tell our students early on or they had to go to industry for a couple of years and then they got to go to graduate school. Uh, plus, we need more qualified people to teach in America. Uh, I don't think we, we have a great pool. Um, um, so, so, yes, I think this is like a dream job for many people. Yeah, I, I, there, are, there are some drawbacks, I find, to being a professor that there, for some students I don't think is the right thing. Of you know, course, one yeah. thing I, I do miss that, you know, since we are, are working with a new crop of students every year, uh, it is hard to to be able to get to the most modern uh, developments. Uh, I, I, my background is in telecommunications, and you cannot believe, well, of course you know, where we started with telephones 40 years ago to where we are now, and it's a little, I, there's no way I'm going to explain a 5G radio system to an undergraduate student. So that's a little challenging from that side. So if you're that kind of student, being a professor may not be the ideal, uh, you know, uh, person for you. And and sometimes, you know, we do have to explain things again and again every every year. We do refine tune it, but for some people, that's not where they want to be. They don't want to have to relearn something again and again. So I know, but but you know, I mean. Not everybody want to be a professor, probably, right? Uh, but but I still think uh, I still yeah. think um, many many of the qualified people don't go to mm. graduate school. That's what I see the bigger problem. It's not like we don't have many students who want to be. They just don't think that's the right thing for them, or they want to get a job right after bachelor's because of family commitments or financial commitments. And that is something that I feel is a sad scenario in America today because we need more of these students going to graduate school. Mm. And and I think our numbers are not that good um, in terms of how many of our undergraduate students are pursuing a master's or a bachelor's. Uh, I don't think we even hit a national average. Uh, and 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 if you do PhD, then you have only two directions: either a research type of a job or an academic job. So I'm I think we have a lot of good talent out there, but we need to get them. Yeah, one thing I would say that there's been a positive, I think, on the grad school. There's a much, there's many more non-residence based grad programs out there online or where there's some kind of uh, mm -hmm. hybrid where they meet maybe a few times 
uh, during the, the, the quarter mm. or they meet online. And I've been pretty impressed with some of the programs that are taking advantage of that kind mm. of strategy where they are trying to allow people to move on in their studies without having to make a big commitment of being a poor grad student. And so that that's a good thing for the, the mm -hmm. students that we have. You can pursue graduate studies without having to completely change your life. And I've, I've seen many, mm -hmm. many companies supporting it. And to me, that's a positive. And if they really end up enjoying graduate, grad school so much that they pursue a PhD, that's all the better. But, you know, most of us know that design engineering positions really require more of a grad level education. The body of knowledge just continues to increase in engineering and you've got to be able to push beyond the bachelor's level if you're going to be pushing the edge on mm -hmm. your discipline. Well, Jerry, Jawa, thank you so much for uh, being here today and you've been very generous uh, with your time today. I got a lot of tips. Uh, that I'm going to try to incorporate into my own teaching, my own routine. And uh, I hope the listeners uh, got a much better idea of what it's like to be uh, an instructor at a university. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Tom. I would like to again thank Professor Mariapan Jawaharlal and Professor Gerald Herter for spending some time with me today to share their experiences of being an engineering faculty member. I also would like to thank Cesar Moreno for helping record and edit this episode, as well as Cal Poly Pomona for providing funding for this podcast project. If you enjoyed the episode, you can support it by leaving comments wherever you heard the podcast and letting friends and family know about the podcast. Goodbye for now. <laughs>